Welcome to the Reformed University Fellowship at UNCW Podcast. At RUF, we believe that you are never so bad that you are beyond God's grace. But never so good that you don't need God's grace. To learn more about UNCW RUF, join our weekly meetings, or get connected with our group. Follow us at RUF UNCW on social media or visit ruf.org slash UNCW. So, if you've been kind of around churchy culture for any amount of time. And again, maybe you grew up like me and you were kind of like church adjacent, kind of from the outside looking in. You may have heard this phrase. Maybe even you have said this phrase to someone else. I know I've said this phrase before. And you can kind of finish the phrase for me. I bet you could do it. The phrase is this, Christianity is not about rules, it's about, what? What would you say? It's not about rules, it's about relationship. Yes, see, it's like right there on the tip of your tongue. And they both start with R, so it's, it really is natural. Okay, people say that all the time. I have said that before to people. And I think when people make that statement, what they're trying to do is they're trying to correct And I think necessarily the fact that people have turned the truth of a relationship with God, that he a relationship of love that he calls us into, to a personal relationship, and have turned it into this kind of like mechanical thing that's totally devoid of love, totally devoid of joy, totally devoid of emotion, totally devoid of like responsiveness and back and forth goodness that we think it's really the bread and butter of relationships. But when you think about that statement, like, you know, Christianity is not about rules, it's about relationship. I mean, it's kind of nonsense. And I I don't think I'm going to say it anymore. And this is why. If you say it, no offense. But here's here's what I would say. All relationships have rules. And in fact, the best kind of relationships are the relationships where those rules are like really clear and just laid out so people can understand them. Like the worst thing ever is being in a relationship with someone, having some kind of relation to someone and not knowing where you stand with them and not know, not knowing like where the landmines are that you might step on, right? It, it creates this real insecurity, this real fear, this real unease. But the strongest, most durable, most lasting relationships that we have examples of are actually relationships that have this element of covenant attached to them. Relationships that are a combination of love and of law. Marriage is an example of a relationship like this. Like two people get together and they're held together, not merely by the strength of their feelings for one another, but by these mutually agreed upon promises that they make to one another, make to a community around them, and make to God. So it's this combination of love and law, of relationship and rules. And when you come to the Bible, and specifically when you come to the type of covenant relationship that God calls us into, covenant is just a way of thinking about a relationship that's a combination of law and love, of relationship and rules. This covenant relationship that God calls us into, the, the, 
Well, you have to remember, and I think what we have to get in our heads, especially when we approach something like the Ten Commandments, which is a list of things not to do and things to do. Like it's literally a list of rules. If we approach that thinking that rules and relationship are somehow opposed to each other, it's really going to make us allergic to, to studying the Ten Commandments. But instead, what I hope you will see this morning is that the rules that God... Oh, this morning. This evening. Thank you. Shauna just like laughed in front of me. What I hope that you will see this evening is that God's rules don't inhibit relationship with him. They're not opposed to relationship with him. They actually flow out of relationship with him. And because we're not just called to live in relationship to God, we're actually called to live in right, loving, faithful relationship with other people, with a community of other people. These rules, these commands, actually enable relationship with other people as well. So rules not opposed to freedom. Rules actually help freedom flourish. Uh, there's this guy, G.K. Chesterton, who's like this really um, brilliant famous philosopher guy. He used to be an atheist, and then he investigated Christianity, and he became a Christian. He was like friends with H.G. Wells and like turn of the century, you know, steampunk, explorer, you know, science fiction, smart guys in Britain. This is one of the things that he says, and I thought this was like such a great observation. He said, the more I considered Christianity, the more I found that while it had established a rule and an order, there were rules, there were this structure, there, there was these these, um, this order, the chief aim of that order was to give room for good things to run wild. I love that phrase, y'all. God's rules give room for good things to run wild. That's the angle that I want to take on the Ten Commandments. Every week, I want to look at a different aspect of this law that God gives and say, okay, how does this enable freedom? How does this enable life? Like, how does this enable joy? Like, how does laying this thing down, if this was lived out and observed, and people were really, like, living into this, and it became, you know, imprinted on our character, how would that let just goodness and beauty run rampant in all of our relationships and everything that we do? You know, in the Bible, they're not actually even called the Ten Commands. It's really interesting. They're referred to as the ten words. I don't know if you noticed in the passage, it starts by saying, and God spoke all these words to Moses. So, I mean, there's more than ten actual words, you know, like nouns and verbs and stuff in there. But they're called the ten words. And so I think even just saying ten words rather than ten commands or ten rules, it just like changes my perspective a little bit. So we're going to be calling them the ten words or the ten words of life because they're there to let life and goodness and beauty and truth run wild. And it's interesting that that word rule, uh, it, you know, old monks would sometimes commit to doing something if they were gonna live in community with each other, they would commit to this thing called a rule of life. And basically what a rule of life was, it, um, the word rule comes from this Latin word that means trellis. A trellis is like this wooden structure that, that, that uh, plants can grow on. And, you know, it has some structure. It's kind of firm. It's kind of inflexible. But here's the thing. The trellis keeps plants from just growing on the ground and the fruit just rotting. 
if you have a trellis, actually more life, more fruitfulness, more beauty can grow. It helps train the plant in the way that it should grow, the way that it's best to grow, the way that it's going to flourish. That's what I want to think about when I think about you know, coming into a relationship with God and hearing these words booming with like thunder and smoke and fire from the top of this mountain out in the middle of the desert. So the main point, I've said it already, but in all of life, we see that rules don't create relationship. Okay, R- Rules aren't like preceding a relationship. They don't like make the relationship happen. Rules flow out of an existing relationship. And in the same way with the rest of life, with God, when we come to meet him, God's rule of life for his people flows out of a pre-existing relationship, one of rescue and one of redemption. So I just want to explain what that pre-existing relationship looks like tonight from two different angles. And I'm going to talk about the two rescues that God makes in the Exodus. In this story of getting God's people out of Egypt, the first rescue where God gets his people out of Egypt, and then the second rescue, where God gets Egypt out of his people. Okay, so just the first rescue, I just wanna, this is gonna be like a flying over at 10,000 feet. If you're at all interested in looking at this, you can go back and read Exodus kind of one through 19 on your own. It's fascinating. And then we can talk about it. We can get coffee and kind of hash it out. And I can answer all the thousands of questions you're probably gonna have. But the first rescue is based on First, who God is, it kind of establishes this fact of who God is and then who we are in relationship to that. So this first rescue where God gets his people out of Egypt, God reveals himself to be the one real living and true God. Now, I don't know if you know this story, God's people are stuck in Egypt. They're in bitter slavery. They've been there for like over 400 years. So they're stuck, and there's generations of his people that were created to live with him, created uh, to flourish and be blessed and to be a blessing to the world, and they are in bitter servitude. And they cry out. For generations, they haven't known anything but this like horrible working conditions, these demeaning, dehumanizing conditions that they live in, right? And they cry out to God. At the beginning of Exodus, it says, they cried out, and God saw, and God heard. And then God responds by calling Moses, sending Moses. Moses goes to Pharaoh, and he says, God wants to take his people out so that they can worship him in the wilderness. And Pharaoh's like, not going to do it. And so God proceeds to send a series of plagues on Egypt. And what you need to understand about this is each of the plagues basically represents God dunking on a particular Egyptian god. Egyptians had all these different gods. They had a god of the crops. They had a god of the weather. They had a god that was like the frog god. They had a god that was like the Nile god. And every single plague is basically God saying, I'm actually the one in control of these things. And you can go back, and, and you know, theologians and archaeologists have studied this, that each plague is basically God saying, this fake God is not the thing that's actually in control of this. I'm the one in control of light and darkness. I'm the one in control of life and death. I'm the one in, in, over control over the livestock. I'm the one in control of everything. So it's God revealing himself to be the real God. 
the creator God, the one who uh, runs absolutely everything. But what does God do for us? Because that, I mean, that's a big question, right? It's nice just to know that God is, um, the God of the Bible is this creator God that's real and that's in control of all these things. But what does that have to do with us? Is he just this controller God who's like way off at a distance? Listen to the language that he uses in uh, Exodus 19. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did. You've seen who I am, you've seen what I did, and this is who you are to me. You yourselves, I bore you on eagle's wings and I brought you to myself, why? So that you would be my treasured possession among all peoples. God is saying, I'm not just this far off God, I am grabbing a hold of you and I'm pulling you out of a pit. And now do you know who you are to me? You are mine. It's weird to think about that, if we're honest. Because we don't walk around thinking like, I wonder who I belong to. If you think about it, it's actually kind of strange for you know, the nation of Israel. Because they were property of Pharaoh. And then God comes and rescues them, and he says, now, guess what? You belong to me. At no point does he rescue them to belong to themselves. I think this is really important for us to know. And if that kind of rubs against you, then join the club, because I also am a little confused by that. And honestly, if I'm honest, can I be honest? Can I say honest one more time? I would much... In my natural state, I would much rather prefer to just belong to myself. But God is saying, I did not create you to belong to yourself. I rescued you so that you would belong to me, so that you would be my treasured possession. And here's the interesting thing. At least I think it's interesting. God rescues them out of Egypt. Through through all this like ordeal, he judges Uh, Pharaoh and all of his armies and rescues these people and all throughout it everyone is doubting everyone is fearful everyone is afraid everyone is grumbling I mean not everyone but but you keep hearing people are grumbling against Moses they get to this place where that you know they've escaped now after all these plagues have happened and basically they've seen all of these miracles on behalf of them to get them out of this God is, um, his presence is going before them in like this fiery pillar. So they're seeing this miraculous kind of like smoke and fire and they're walking through the wilderness and then they see this army coming behind them and they're like, Moses, did you just like, weren't there graves enough in Egypt? We couldn't have died in Egypt now, we're gonna die out here. And they're just like dogging Moses and clowning him for bringing them out here saying now we're just gonna die out here when there's this miraculous pillar of fire guarding and protecting them. They get on the other side of the, of the river and God brings miraculous water, miraculous food to care for them and provide for them. And then they're brought to the foot of the mountain. And at every single point before God provides something for them, they complain. And so they have basically come out really half-heartedly kind of kicking and screaming in some situations, in some um, instances. 
And God brings him to the foot of this mount, and then he says, you are my treasured possession. You, complaining people. You, doubting people. You, half-hearted, fearful people. You are my treasured possession. This, my friends, is what is called covenant love. And whenever I do a wedding, I hope one day that if one of you gets married, I can uh, perform your wedding. Connor's like nodding. I'll say this at your wedding, Connor. There's a difference between covenant love and like ordinary feeling love that we talk about. Ordinary romantic feeling love looks at something that's beautiful, looks at something that's attractive, looks at something pleasing, and loves it. Covenant love looks at something that's needy, looks at something that's broken, looks at something that's been defaced or distorted, chooses to love it, and by loving it, makes it beautiful. Romantic love looks at an object that's beautiful and loves it. Covenant love looks at something that is broken and by loving, fixes it. God's love for his people is covenant love. And he says, I have brought you out and you're going to be my possession. So if we are his possession, what does that do? Like, what does that mean for us? And here's what I would say. A lot of times when we think about a relationship with God or we think about um, something like the Ten Commandments, we tend to think this. We tend to think, okay, God says that he wants to save us. God says that he wants to be in a relationship with us, that he wants to set his love upon us. I also know he has things he likes and things he doesn't like. And so thinking that God's like any other human being, you know, like some potential romantic interest that we have, we think, I know what I need to do. I need to make myself lovable. I should do the things that he likes. And I should stop doing the things he doesn't like. And then, therefore, after I do those things, he will love me. Do you see what you've done? You have put rules ahead of relationship. You have put obedience ahead of identity. And what God does in the Exodus is he reverses the order and restores it to its proper place. He says, I have already loved you. I have already set my love upon you. I have already adopted you. You are mine. Here's my law. Here's how to live in my love. Do you see the difference? So we never want to approach the Ten Commandments as if God you know, sent Moses to all these people while they're in slavery, and he's like, do you guys want to get out of slavery? Do you want to live your best, most successful, most happy life? Here's these ten things that you need to do, and if you do them really, really well, maybe you earn a spot on the trip out of Egypt. What God doesn't says instead is he says, I want you, I want you, I want you. Anyone who wants to come, we're leaving. Do you want to come? And they're all like, yes, we hate being slaves in Egypt. And he says, great, come on, and tell everyone. And they go. And then he brings them to himself and he says, I love you so much that now I want to tell you what I'm like and I want to tell you what you're going to be like because you're with me and you belong to me. Do you see the difference? Is all the difference in the world. Is the difference between Christianity and every other religion in the world because every other religion says, 
I want salvation. I want peace. I want to be loved by some deity. I want a good life. Therefore, I will do these rules. What Christianity says is God says, I have set my love on you when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, when you couldn't do anything to earn it or deserve it. I'm freely giving you this love. Now walk in my ways. Because I love you, learn to walk in my commands. It's all the difference in the world. Um, okay. Here is the second rescue, very briefly. The first rescue is God gets his people out of Egypt. The second rescue is God giving them his law to get Egypt out of his people. Because I don't know if you know what happens. You know, they get... They're so used to being in this polytheistic culture where they worship idols. They're so used to being in this, this um, relationship of being abused and mistreated by other people. They do not know how to trust. They do not know how to love. They do not know how to live in peace and harmony and goodness and beauty. And so as soon as Moses goes up the mountain, they start making a false god. And like at the very beginning... They totally blow it because inside their hearts, they are wired. They're wired to turn away against God. It's the most natural thing in the world to us. And so God says, I'm giving you these commands because you belong to me. And what you have to remember is what we've said before, that the context for change is pre-existing relationship of law and pre-existing relationship of love and redemption and rescue. Because you are loved, because you are rescued, because I've redeemed you, here's my law. Um, Kevin DeYoung, who's some of your pastors from back in Charlotte, this is what he says. He says, the 10 commands are not instructions on how to get out of Egypt. There are rules for a free people to stay free. So redemption happens, then the law is given. And what are they set free to do? I think this is really important for us to, to remember also. They have been set free to fail. That sounds weird, right? God gives you your commands so that you will fail at them? God tells you what to do so that you will screw it up? Well, that's not exactly what God is doing, but, but I, what we see is pretty quickly and pretty immediately, and if you just read at all familiar with the rest of the Bible, people don't do a great job of keeping these commandments. And over and over again, God says, yeah, I know. And I've made a way for needy, broken, disobedient people who do not how to know how to do what's right to be forgiven and brought back into relationship with me. Um, there's this song um, called I Don't Know How to Be Yours. Grayson told me about it. It's by this guy, Chris Renzema. Just listen to this. I think this is what um, basically got, people are, are learning when they're out in the desert. Hear the lyrics. It says, you say that you love me. Don't say that you love me, because I don't know how to be yours. You say that you want me. Don't say that you want me, because I don't know how to be yours. I still act like an orphan, I guess. And my hard heart breaks to confess that even while you hold me as I cry on the floor, I still don't know how to be yours. Even while these people are wandering through the desert, breaking God's laws over and over again. They're learning slowly. They cannot do this on their own. And God is saying, I know. 
and I'm giving you these laws, I'm giving you these commands to help you change. Because I don't know if you've realized this, but like simply knowing what you're supposed to do doesn't actually help you change. The way that we change is by either seeing something that is so compelling and so beautiful and so good that it's more attractive than doing bad, or we come to the end of ourself and we go, I really don't know how to do this. And we finally let someone help us. That's what I mean when I say that God's people are being set free to fail. And to put it another way is just to say that they're being set free to learn. So when you hear each commandment, when we go through each commandment, you know, instead of uh, hearing all the thou shalt nots, although I will say them, and you, you need to hear them. God is saying, hey, don't do this. Here's how I would maybe uh, encourage you to look at it. Hear God saying, because of who I am to you, because of who you are to me, here's what the story of your life is going to look like. 50, 75, 300 years from now. Because I am never going to leave you or forsake you. This is what you're going to look like. You're going to be a faithful person. You're going to be an honest person. You're going to be a person who loves me and loves other people. Don't think of them as prohibition. Think of them as prophecy. Think of them as prediction. Think of God saying, this is the journey that we are going on. This is what I'm going to teach you to do if you will let me teach you. Does that make sense? They've been set free to learn. They've been set free to lean on God. I heard a story um, this year uh, over break. I was with some friends of mine up in Apex and um, a buddy of mine who were Young Life leaders together in college, I was sitting with him and some of his friends, and um, he, uh, one of his friends heard that I was you know, a campus minister here at UNCW. And he said, I went to UNCW. He's a guy about my age. And he said, you know, I, I grew up in the Triangle and I, and I went to UNCW and it was one of the hardest places I've ever been. In fact, I was only there for one semester. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's so... That's so hard. He's like, yeah, can I tell you my story? I was like, yes, please. And y'all, he proceeded to tell me one of the craziest stories I have ever heard. And I'll tell it to you right now. It's a story of rescue. It's a story of relationship. And it's a story of like real change and growth. So this guy uh, grew up in Raleigh. He came down to UNCW, and you know he, he was kind of a kid who um, he did Young Life, and he was kind of around people who uh, uh, were following Jesus, and he was kind of interested in Jesus. But he was also interested in having a good time, like many people who come to college are. And so he came down here, and you know he had partied a little, you know he had done some drugs, uh, he dabbled. And he came down here, and the first weekend he was here in town, he said, I went to a party at Redsville Beach. And at this party, I mean, there was all kinds of different stuff. And there, uh, I guess like the older cousin of someone who owned the house was there. This kind of weird older middle-aged guy, and he was there, and he grabbed me and my friend, and uh, he said, hey, you guys want to do some cocaine? And they were like, yes, thank you for asking us. We did want to do that. And so... They go into this back room and do some drugs, and then he says, hey, do you guys want to make some money? And they're like, yes, thank you for asking us. We do want to make some money. 
He's like, you should sell this cocaine for me. And they're like, that sounds like a great plan. So they proceed to become drug dealers. This is 48 hours into college. And he tells me that he doesn't really remember the rest of that semester because he was out every night, out with people, and it was just like this spiral of activity and numbing out and escaping and then kind of like going back and forth. And finally he was like, I didn't even recognize myself and I was terrified and I felt enslaved. I was stuck and I didn't know what to do and I was so ashamed, I didn't know how to talk to my parents about it and the only person I knew what to do was there was this older guy, Ben, who used to lead a Bible study for us in college. And so I called my friend Ben and he was living up in Raleigh with a couple of the guys, they were Young Life leaders. And I called him and I said, Ben, this is what I've done. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to help myself. I don't know how to change. And Ben said, we're coming to get you. So they came and they moved this guy out. He withdrew from all his classes. He didn't want to go home. And so these guys said, hey, we have, you know, you have an extra bed in our house. You can sleep on the couch. And so he goes and they say, all right, you're going to live in this house. Hey, don't do drugs anymore, okay? Like, let's not do that. Let's not, like, hurt yourself anymore. And let, let's grow and, like, let's make some changes. And he's like, yes, that's what we're going to do. I'm not going to do cocaine anymore. I'm not going to be a drug dealer. I'm going to, like go to church with you guys and I'm going to make a change in my life. And after being there for a little while, um, I think he just got kind of antsy. And one night he goes out to a party and he's like, you know, I, I don't know what happened, but I just bought like a little bit of cocaine. And so he buys this tiny bag of cocaine and he, he, he drives back to the house where all these guys that have welcomed him in are living and he's ashamed to bring it into the house, so he says, I sit in the car with the lights off, par parked in front of the house, and I just do the cocaine on the CD that's in my car. And then immediately I feel like horrified. And I feel so guilty. And he walks into the house and it's so late, like everyone's asleep, and he goes into his friend Ben's room and, and he and he like is, is like wake, shaking him to wake him up. And he's like, Ben, you, I'm so sorry. I said I wouldn't do it and I did it. And, um, and this is what I did and I just, I don't know what to do. And Ben like barely wakes up. And he says, this was, he said that this was the, exactly what I needed to hear. Ben rolls over and he just kind of cracks one eye and he says, dude, it's okay, you live here now. And what he was doing is he wasn't saying, hey, like, what you did doesn't matter. But what he's saying is, we got you now. You're not going back to your old life because you're here with us now. You're in relationship with us. And the fact that you broke this, you know, like, no doing cocaine rule does not destroy our relationship. In fact, it just means you need us even more and you're here now. Like something fundamentally has changed about you and about your life. You've moved out of that old life and you've moved into a new life, and guess what? We're gonna help you. You're gonna be okay. And he said he went to bed feeling loved, feeling rescued, feeling secure. Y'all, that is a picture of what God has for you. Um, not all the details of that. 
But God is saying, I want to bring you into such a relationship with myself that when you screw up, you will know that you are loved and that you are not alone. And that nothing you do is going to change my love for you. Nothing you do can get you out of my hands because you belong to me now. This is where you live. That's what I hope we're going to learn this semester. So let me pray and we'll sing a song. Heavenly Father, thank you for my friends. Thank you for these truths. Lord, help us to think about them. Help us to respond to them. Help us to live in obedience to them. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.